Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Cab Fest for Friday, April 21st, the Bill Comes Due edition. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and I'm joined this week, as I am every week, by Emily Bazelon of the New York Times, who is not in New York, but this time is in Nashville, Tennessee. Congratulations, Emily, on the recording contract. <laughs> Just you wait for my first album. You're going to love it. Um, joining us in New York, um, in place of David Plotz, is Adam Davidson. Uh, he is a staff writer for The New Yorker and a friend of the show and a, and a repeated a guest on the show. And we're very grateful to have you, Adam, with us. Thank you so much. I feel very Plotzian today. I will be as Plotzian as I can be. Oh, oh, dear. Well, for those viewers, uh, listeners, sorry, who may have heard that, please don't run <laughs> away. Um, Adam's just kidding. Um, that's a joke. We love David and we're sorry that he's not with us, but we're very glad that Adam is. And Adam is in the um, Panoply Studios in New York. Our t- first topic, we're going to talk about North Korea. Then we're going to talk about President Trump's executive order, which related both to uh, highly skilled immigration, also U.S. imports of steel, or not U.S. imports of steel. Well, I guess it did affect U.S. imports of steel, but a variety of economic issues. And then we'll also talk about uh, tax reform, which is the um, other big white whale of the early Trump administration in addition to healthcare reform. And then third topic will be Bill O'Reilly's quick demise, the rise and fall of Bill O'Reilly. And then we'll have cocktail chatter. And then in Slate Plus, we are going to talk about pricing. Pricing fluctuations. So tensions have been escalating between the United States and North Korea over the last several weeks, bringing the countries to the brink or not at all to the brink of anything. Things feel really tense, but they are also uncertain. The American president, Donald Trump, has been saying the U.S. will act in North Korea if the Chinese don't help them. And the North Korean government has been saying that it will respond to provocations. But nothing in this drama is sort of as it seems, including the location of the U.S. carrier battle group, the Carl Vinson, which was reportedly speeding towards the North Korean peninsula. But this week we learned may have been going in exactly the opposite direction. Uh, so I'm... Uh, I'm looking to you, Emily, for your sense of where things really are and what's happening with North Korea. That is so optimistic of you to look toward me. Um, it seems predictable that North Korea would be ratcheting up its um, missile testings and its kind of level of aggression as a way of testing the Trump administration and seeing what it can get away with, whether... Um, Diplomacy internationally has really changed with President Trump and, and to also, I think, test China and figure out where China stands in all of this. What I wonder about and can't decide is whether Trump's kind of erratic, unpredictable response, um, in which he seems to go all over the place. You know, he talks to the uh, leader of China for 10 minutes and changes his mind about China's power over North Korea. He says, and James Mattis, our defense secretary, says they're sending an armada, and then it turns out that the ship is going in a completely different direction. Like, is there a usefulness to all this? Fred Kaplan of Slate was asking a question about the madman theory, whether for China and North Korea, especially China, a country that 
uh, love stability, whether there's a way in which this unpredictability will actually help the United States. I guess I can imagine that being true in the short term, but it just seems in the medium to long term, like, how can this possibly be an effective tool of diplomacy? Adam, what do you think? I, I think that we are seeing right now the the scariest uh example of of the of the lie that is Trump's central sales pitch that he is the deal maker in chief that he knows deals. I've been spending a lot of time with current and former Trump organization officials and you know people who worked very closely with him on all of his deals and what they make very clear is he had very little to do with the actual deal making and wasn't particularly good at it that he would come in with some huge ridiculous demand and then the actual deal makers, the lawyers who worked for him would actually come up with a deal that worked and wouldn't really tell the Donald about it because he would just get mad. So I, th I think it is a, a real fiction. But in this case, it is terrifying. I mean, the, the madman theory that for um, – for for listeners who don't know, um, was this idea that to to have a real deterrence, you need to convince the U.S. needed to convince the Soviet Union that we might launch a nuclear war as a first strike. But that would be insane. Why would anyone do that? And we needed them to believe we might do that. So we had to make convince them that maybe we were crazy. And but there's an argument that to make someone convince be convinced that you might be crazy, you have to actually be crazy. Anyway, it, I, I think that's a ridiculous oversimplification, but it at least gives an idea of what the madman theory is. The problem is it, it was situated in a fairly stable game theoretic environment in which you had two players with roughly equal size of um, strength with roughly the same amount to lose with... with um, who who were facing off against each other and it it was it came out of you know the game theory work of Thomas Schelling and others that the conditions we have right now is we have a very small player in in North Korea with with you know outsized muscle who doesn't clearly have as much to lose um in, in at at you know, in in the sense that the Soviet Union did. And and this is both specifically it's a smaller country, but also it's a totally different power structure. I mean, there's something like from a dozen to 400, depending on which political scientist you talk to, decision makers in the North Korean hierarchy who influence um, the outcome of any policy. And that's just a totally different construct than the complex decision making that happened within the Soviet Union and the U.S. So that's just my nerdy trying to disrupt that theory. But the the core issue here is that Donald Trump, I don't think he is not situated within um, a stable game theoretic environment and he doesn't actually understand the cards he has to play he apparently recently didn't even understand who the leader of north korea was so i just want to poo poo this idea that that he is in any way the right man for this job or in any way no matter how much we want to argue it um is, is a stabilizing force i think this is the scariest moment potentially in human history i, I don't mean to be too dramatic but right that's not unreasonable well yeah, well, I mean, you are dealing with a, uh, an unstable country with an unstable leader in North Korea, um, and so the um, even if game, th even if the traditional madman theory, which I always felt like was a little over, I mean, it's a, th a theory. I'm not the practical um, 
real practical use of it. The, the In George W. Bush's administration, they used to sort of talk about Dick Cheney in this way, that you needed Dick Cheney to be, as one advisor put it at the time, the guy with the knife in his teeth and, and looking like he was going to push the administration way off in this direction and that, and that that allowed in negotiations with various Middle Eastern countries a kind of, uh, well, you know, don't let us, don't, we don't want to go the Cheney way, so we'll have to do this sort of, you know, agree with us here or else the options will go in this much more severe way. I think in this case, you obviously got an, an, a leader who nobody really knows how he's going to react and respond. And you have a double bluster here. So if President Trump is saying we're going to go it alone, there's some confusion about what, whether that's the administration position or that's where he is. And he's in a different place than his secretary of state and secretary of defense. North Korea, on the other hand, is blustered effectively over the last um, uh, over its history, which is to say it escalates tensions in order to get something um, from the West. So, Emily, I guess the question to you is, if this is new, newly dangerous, how does it get resolved? Who? What's the best possible resolution? Huh. The best possible resolution. I mean, I guess, well, this is also depends whose interests you're thinking about here, right? I mean, from the position of the United States, we don't want North Korea to be launching missiles. We want them to be weaker and not a threat and to just kind of go away. But there's no reason that that makes any sense from their point of view. And so then I look again to China to wonder how China is going to kind of negotiate between these two players on the international stage. And it seems like an opportunity for China to really show what power it has and also that it can be a stabilizing force. Um, so I'm really curious about the role that China ends up playing here. And I, maybe I am looking to them and having faith in them just because it seems like both Trump and North Korea are not sources of stability and stability seems like what is the most needed in this kind of situation. Adam, let me ask you about that, about China um, from an economic perspective, but also is this, so it's a double part question. First on the, on the madman theory, couldn't it be possible that if, if let's um, say that the, there is design in the administration approach, that the madman theory is not designed to get North Korea to behave in one way or another. It's to get China to move. Uh, and so that China uh, would respond to that. And then secondly, whether you buy that or not, uh, what could the administration give China? What does China want that would get it to uh, to solve this problem for the administration? So this is another thing that really concerns me, John, is is the conflating of North Korea with Chinese economic interests, because I, I think it gets to a fundamental misunderstanding that Donald Trump has about how global trade works and how the U.S.-China economic relationship exists. I think in my mind, it's fairly well established that Donald Trump has this zero-sum view of trade. And Trump's mental model is he has some hidden pile of treasure that he can either give or not give to China. And the Chinese know that's not true. The Chinese understand that um, that effectively, economically, we grow together or we fall together. There's there's no quid pro quo arrangement. There's no a little more of this, a little, you know, you get a little more or we get a little more. There's no fixed pie that we're we're um, sharing slices of that might exist on the margin in the short term. But but in the big picture, that that doesn't exist at all. And so I, I think that by him arguing that he is, on the one hand, weakening his leverage with China because he's imagining leverage that doesn't actually exist. 
And on the other, he's conflating two very different issues. North Korea sending a nuclear missile to San Francisco. China doesn't want that for all of its own reasons. Getting a slightly larger share of the global steel market is not high on their list. So it it just feels like more part of the mix of an ignorant administration flailing in stupid ways and ineffective ways when when time and strategy are, are have never been more important but it, but I'm surely China wants something and we want China to do something so even if even if the president has it wrong is there something that will induce China which has the better chance of stopping North Korea than the US does I mean at least non-militarily I, I mean it, it, I guess <laughs> You know, he's threatening punitive tariffs and, and anti-dumping on, on certain specific sectors of, of the Chinese economy like steel. That would have some small local impacts on, on the Chinese economy. Um, I don't think there's much he can do macroeconomically. China's core macroeconomic concerns, I would say, have much more to do with maybe the Federal Reserve. So, I mean, I guess if he said, I'll, I'll get rid of Janet Yellen and put some inflation hawk in that would scare them on the margins. You know, we could open up more to Vietnam, to Bangladesh. I mean, the TPP was really the one big shot we had at fundamentally rearranging the global economy in a way that China would not have liked, but he already did what China wanted in that case by canceling the TPP. So I, I don't, it's not that he can't do anything. I mean, there certainly are individual Chinese businesses or even an entire Chinese economic sectors that can profit. But in the big macroeconomic picture, I don't think China's key macroeconomic concerns have anything to to do with things that the U.S. president has control over. So, Emily, if this, I mean, North Korea has always been out there. And now, what is your feeling if on a scale from zero to 10, North Korea was a problem, what number for you before a month ago? And where do you think it's at now? I mean, I think for me, it was like down at two or three, just not something I thought of as having a big impact on American lives. Um, however much one might worry about the lack of freedom within North Korea, it just seemed like they were the least dangerous part of um, the kind of mosaic of American enemies abroad. And now I feel like they're moving up the scale. And I... I'm taken aback by Adam saying this is the scariest moment. That makes me feel like I should be more scared. I think I haven't completely adjusted to how much we apparently should be worrying about them. What do you think about that part of it? One military advisor said that North Korea was the biggest military action that President Obama didn't take, which is to say that it was very, very high on the threat list. Donald Trump said that President uh, Obama told him when during the transition period that North Korea was the biggest problem he was going to have to worry about The in talking to both Democrats and Republicans in the national security community at the National Security Community Center. It's very nice. They've had a little renovation, a little space for the kids. Um, basically, everybody says, well, if they if they were able to put an intercontinental ballistic missile tip that had a nuclear warhead on it, that would require a military preemptive response, whether you're a Democrat, whether it's Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, they would that 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 would that this in conversations I've had has been presented as a kind of yes, well, that's of course, that's what they would do. So if now an ICBM and some people are suggesting it's basically we're very, we're quite close to that moment. Then the number has been kind of increasingly going up. But then as we've been talking about it, there is this rhetorical blustering part of this conversation that's either effective and conscious or not. And so, you know, to what extent is this um, 
we're all getting spun up here uh, a little bit. I guess the last question, Emily, to you is, who is the alternative voice here? Is it Rand Paul? Congress seems to have uh, not really asserted its authority on Syria. Um, Shouldn't and or is anyone saying, hey, before we go get involved in a huge really complicated war with a, with an with an adversary that can retaliate in a way that ISIS can't really shouldn't we have a big conversation about this yes is we that should person have a big... does that person exist well that's a good question i mean you have not mentioned any democrats and it does seem like if this is going to be um a military conflict the democrats have to be stepping up and talking about it and and then who is there an obvious person among the democrats who are more interested in military affairs and intelligence. Is there someone obvious who kind of jumps out? Not that, I mean, I, I, so that's not, not that good. I can think of. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I would say this is why, you know, I, I feel like reflectively just because people I trust have said to trust him, I, I've decided to trust uh, Defense Secretary Mattis and, and this whole Vincent Carrier fiasco of, I mean, that shows a, a, uh, some profound multi-day misunderstanding and miscommunication between the Defense Department and and the White House. That's very upsetting. I also want to clarify why I say this is terrifying right now. I mean, I think I don't know how to characterize the odds, but, you know, maybe we've gone from a 0.001% chance to a 0.1% chance, something like that. Or, but, or maybe it's a 5% chance. I certainly don't think it's a 50% chance or an 80% chance of some military conflict. But that's still really scary because a military conflict with North Korea means hundreds of thousands, millions of people in in South Korea and Japan, maybe even Alaska and San Francisco dying. And then it means a country whose population is roughly the size of Iraq, but with nuclear weapons and with a far more sophisticated international potential terrorism operation in a position to disrupt all sorts of U.S. interests all over the world all the time. So I think if, if... if we think of the Iraq war plus nukes, plus um, a, a more uh, a, a better military force, a bigger military force, um, it, it gives you a sense of, of the scale of this, which, um, you know, a one or two percent chance of, of that being unleashed is is to me enough to be very, very alarmed. This episode of The Gap House is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, or has a great deal for Mother's Day, listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. 
On to our next topic, which is President Trump's executive order uh, that Adam is going to explain to us. And then uh, we're going to talk a little bit about tax reform, a huge complicated thing that's been very hard for lawmakers to get a hold of, which the administration is both says it's going to work on and then keeps uh, sort of seems to be kicking down the road. So first, Adam, can you explain the president this week signed an executive order that calls for a government review of immigration and other laws uh, related to foreign goods and people? What did he do? He did one tiny little step above nothing, but with a lot of rhetorical flourish. So he he launched the Buy American and Hire American executive order. And in it, he used the word Buy American a lot, but he didn't explain exactly what he means. I mean, the the he ordered that over the next 60 days, the Commerce Secretary will review with advice from all sorts of other um, government officials how the U.S. government uses its procurement, you know, the things the U.S. government buys to maximize, that's the word in the executive order, the made in America and hired in America content. So in other words, if the U.S. is buying cars or is getting a building built using steel or whatever, he's directing the that government agencies begin to increase the, con- or he doesn't even say increase, maximize the amount of American content. This might be annoying and nerdy, but he doesn't explain, does that mean maximized by dollar value, maximized by weight, maximized by labor content? Those would be crucial, crucial questions in understanding what the metric of success is here. Um, And it also doesn't explain how you would measure trade-offs. So if you're building a building with U.S. government money and and buying Chinese-made steel is considerably cheaper, is that a worthwhile trade-off? You know, steel plants in America employ very few workers. So you'd have to buy an awful lot of tons of steel to add uh, a significant number of jobs. Um, so so it, it was an opportunity for the president to have his face and the words buy American, hire American. Um, but there really was very little content. And, and what he did it at Snap-on Tools, uh, a tool manufacturer that has been aggressively shifting its manufacturing overseas. I have no problem with that. It just makes it an odd place to have a buy American, hire American campaign. And then he attacked on even more vague language about the H-1B visa program. So the H-1B visa program allows roughly, well, not roughly, exactly 85,000 <laughs> visas to be issued, 20,000 to people with a master's degree or higher, 65,000 to others to come to American work for a temporary period. It largely goes to people in the computer industry. Um, And then there's also, it allows basically an uncapped number to be hired by nonprofits and universities, which allows us to bring professors and others over to the U.S. Uh, The H-1B visa program has gotten way more attention over the years than it should. I mean, it's 85,000 people. I I looked at the numbers yesterday from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Every single working day in America, roughly 10,000 people are hired in computer-related jobs. There are 4 million computer-related jobs in the U.S. It's growing much faster than the economy overall. In that context, 85,000 foreign workers is statistical noise. It's irrelevant. But it is a cheap and easy way to say, hey, I know you're afraid that brown people are stealing your jobs. Well, I'm going to stop that. And I, I don't see any other reason why he would have brought it up. I will point out, he doesn't even say how he's going to change it, just that he th- 
that they're going to make sure these go to the right people, that we're going to review it. Emily, uh, does it matter that there may or may not be proper measuring um, standards for trying to determine whether the government is maximizing American-made content in its purchasing? Um, Isn't this just about the, the event in Kenosha? Well, that part of it does seem like it was just about the event in Kenosha. I cannot help wondering at these moments how much the Trump industries, Trump's own businesses are buying and hiring American. Maybe that is a kind of petty response, but it just seems like if you're going to be preaching this, you got to be starting at home. And I don't think that's necessarily happening in the slightest. I think the H-1B visa conversation is I mean, I get the idea that we're focusing in on this very small part of the economy or even of the tech industry, and it's getting disproportionate attention. But once you focus on it, it does seem like it has flaws. And there are jobs that are being outsourced at a relatively low cost to these big hiring firms in China and India, where it seems like you could change the salary of 60000 that people have to pay and raise it and just have a more sophisticated way of thinking about the effects on American jobs. And politically, of course, that does really matter. I mean, this is a lesson we keep learning over and over about sectors of the economy that change because of immigrant labor, where the costs are highly concentrated among a small but sizable number of Americans who lose their jobs while the benefits are dispersed among the rest of us in, you know, the form of lower pricing or just a better free market. And we don't realize those gains in a way that offsets the political cost of those lost jobs. So I feel like it's important to be sensitive to that. I mean, Adam, you probably, what do you think about that part? Now I get to be Plotzian and say, boy, Emily, I could not disagree more strongly. Okay. (laughs) In my view, in the view of a lot of economists, there's some threshold. It's probably somewhere. Oh, you're going to call all the economists down on your side. Yes. And, you know, but I think, you know, my five-year-old son might agree with you, possibly, and other kindergartners. Thanks. I'll take <laughs> okay. it. Okay. All right. Um, so there's some threshold in America that probably is somewhere around the 80th percentile. So people who make, say, over seventy, eighty, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 a year, something like that, where there's actually a, a thriving economy, the upper middle class, where there really is what we think of as the American dream. People, you go to college, it might take a little longer to get to get started and there might be a lot more volatility, but you you are going to have increasing wages. You are going to have a fairly bright future. And that's not to say that happens to everybody. That's not to say there aren't people who fall between the cracks. And then there's a much larger economy that's, you know, say 80 percent of the country where wages are stagnant, where wages are falling. And for lack of a better way to describe those people, those are people who only have a high school degree or have or have a, a, a very low value college degree. So say a non-exclusive college and got a degree that doesn't add a lot of value. And they are living in a very different America, much harsher, scarier America. Computer scientists are about as lucky a group as exists in America. And I'm not saying I'm sure there are people listening and, you know, there, there, there was a really tough period in the 90s and early 2000s where there was a big disruption in, in the kind of computer science that was needed. And, and a lot of computer programming jobs went abroad. But as a group, you have four million people with thousands of new jobs every single day. You have an unemployment rate of around 2%, effectively full employment. This is not what we need to be worrying about. 
And choosing this as an issue, in my mind, can only be explained as brown people are stealing your jobs. It's only part of a xenophobic argument. It's it's a stand-in, a wedge issue. I don't see any economic logic that would lead you to focusing on outsourcing of computer science jobs. That That is about as safe an island as exists in the U.S. economy. Well, Those are just, the winners. Aren't they just tweaking the, or isn't part of it tweaking the entry clar- uh, qualifications that it's that, that he wants to do it based on merit rather than on a lottery? Is that, does that matter? It's fine. I mean, it's kind of like the negotiating with China issue. These are minor, small tweaks that might make sense. Sure. I'm, the H-1B visa program is by far is far away not ideal, and, and I would be on the side of radically increasing it, giving it to hundreds of thousands of people, not just 85,000 people. And I, I don't inherently have any problem with tweaking it. It's just it has nothing to do with the core labor market issues that exist mm. in America today. It is It has nothing to say to working class white voters who feel that their jobs are being outsourced. It is not a serious statement. Before we move on to our third topic, we're going to take the second half of our second topic, which is tax reform. So the president did, made, did what he did this week on uh, perhaps just entirely symbolic grounds. They've got 150 days to do this review. So uh, maybe we'll see the 150 days if there's anything other than symbolism. But Emily, what do you think, the reason in part that the president was doing what he was doing this week with an executive order is that he's been stymied in Congress and he's been stymied by the courts as well. And so he, like President Obama before him, is doing what he can with the pen and the phone, as President Obama used to say, to show that he is an active, engaged president. But tax reform is this other issue that's out there that the White House has identified, that Paul Ryan has identified. What do you think, given what happened with health care, the chances are that this is going to happen and be a political success and is worth well, – like, why do, why do this? Why do it? Well, they promised it. They talked a lot about it. And this is one of the main priorities for Republicans taking control of the government. And if they don't produce something worthwhile, their whole uh, case for why they should be running the country seems just infinitely weaker. So I keep thinking they're going to pass something. It's not going to be the, you know, real top to bottom tax reform overhaul of the whole system that was talked about during the campaign. That just seems like a pipe dream. So complicated, implicating so many different interests, so many lobbying groups. And yet one would think they'd be able to come up with some kind of much more simpler tax cuts for corporations and for wealthy people, which is the kind of Republican Stand by tax initiative. I mean, I don't think there's evidence that it's going to stimulate the economy in some grand way. And politically, if they do that smaller version, then it really just seems like a giveaway to the rich. That seems like a big gift to give to Democrats. But I just can't believe they're not going to try to pass something and then convince people that it has these wider benefits. Uh, Adam, we're never going to be able to plumb the whole depths of this topic in part because we don't really even know what tax reform looks like. But just briefly, there are there is a lot of people want tax reform who are from all different areas. Give us the policy case for tax reform. And then obviously tax reform has been used by Ronald Reagan and by John Kennedy as a way to actually sell tax cuts and sometimes sell them uh, uh, and sometimes hide some of the deficit and debt uh, effects of tax cuts. 
So just give us your thumbnail view of how you think this goes down and what we really mean when we when we're talking about tax reform. So when I hear the word tax reform, and I think in the at least the academic literature, tax reform means the system by which taxes are raised, the the whole way of of taxation. So in the U.S., we're heavily reliant on an income tax and a corporate income tax, whereas in Europe, it's a value-added tax. And that's a fundamentally different kind of tax. It, it taxes people at different points in the economic cycle. It has different impacts. And so I think a very strong and very bipartisan case can be made that we should shift to a different tax system. And I think you could get a lot of people from progressives to libertarians to agree that our system is is pretty lousy and something that taxes something more like a value added tax where um, you're you're not simply blanketly taxing income on individuals and corporate profits, but you're actually taxing everywhere that value is added. And I, I don't want to get into all the technical reasons, but the general view is that would be far less distortionary. The ideal goal of what they call tax optimization is that the tax system itself doesn't change the economic decisions people make. So our tax system creates a lot of incentives to buy homes because of the home interest deduction, to have health insurance through workplaces. You know, one of Plotz's obsessions creates great incentives for corporations to hide their profits overseas so they don't have to pay um, U.S. taxes. And there's some real low-hanging fruit that is available, that is nonpartisan, that's just like good tax policy that we could adopt. The problem is there will be losers. There will be some like Walmart who will have to pay more in taxes under that system, and they're politically powerful. I think the tax reform ship has sailed. I think that that is not going to happen. So what we do have is... We're going to continue to have an income tax and a corporate income tax. And then what we're going to fight over is the distribution of the burden. And because we have a Republican president and Republicans in Congress, we're going to have a redistribution towards the wealthy away from the poor. And that is more of a transfer of wealth effectively from poor people to rich people. Um, There probably would have a short-term growth impact, a positive growth impact, because you do generally see more investment, et cetera, when you have those one-time transfers. But it will inherently be you know, time-limited because of the, the 10-year requirement of budget reconciliation. I mean, of, of the way uh, – anyway, the way, the way they, they handle these kinds of tax cuts in the budget. So it's, it's not really going to fundamentally move the U.S. to a higher growth trajectory. In short, we need something big. We're going to get something small and we're going to get something that benefits the rich. And and they're going to call it tax reform and it's not going to be tax reform. Step into the world of power, loyalty and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Our third topic is that Fox News top star Bill O'Reilly 
his career came to a crashing halt this week, at least as far as that stage of his career with Fox uh, News. And we can discuss where else he'll go. The network took action after many years of complaints about his sexual harassment. It was set in motion, though, this final stage of this long play by uh, revelations three weeks ago in The New York Times of a string of sexual harassment complaints against him that were settled. Uh, it was the second high-profile black eye for the Fox News Network last summer. Roger Ailes, its co-founder and chairman, was pushed out for essentially the exact same reason. So, Emily, take a hold of this wherever you want. Um, Thank you. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's some joke to be made about that <laughs> metaphor, but I'm not going to make it. So here's what really interests me about this. You know, Obviously, as we all remember, during the campaign, the long series of accusations against Donald Trump with regard to harassment and assault didn't matter enough to voters to dissuade them from voting Trump into the presidency. And that seemed like a really low moment for the kind of development of awareness about this issue and how much um, women have really succeeded in convincing people more broadly, I guess I should say feminists have con have convinced people that sexual harassment and sexual assault are serious issues that should be deal breakers for a major leader in the world. In the wake of the election, we have the demise of Roger Ailes and now of Bill O'Reilly over sexual harassment allegations. And what are we to make of the sort of paradox that this didn't really matter for Trump's candidacy or it didn't matter enough. And yet the conservative news network has now had to dethrone two of its biggest players because of these kinds of allegations, which seems like a real victory for the feminist view of the seriousness of harassment. And what I am so struck by is that Fox's ratings aren't down and Bill O'Reilly's ratings weren't down in the wake of this New York Times story. The reason I think that that Fox moved was that corporations pulled their ads from O'Reilly. And so it seems like there's this kind of weird contradiction where the companies seem to be maybe acting on their own principles or with pressure from their own employees or some sense that there's a business cost to advertising with O'Reilly because progressives were able to rattle their sabers enough to make that seem like a real threat. And yet when you look at the sort of larger base of support for Fox, it seems like these folks were forgiving O'Reilly in the same way they were willing to forgive Donald Trump. Adam, give us your sense of the economic throw power. It feels like, and Emily, your analogy between this and the election, it feels like the what's happened here is that the advertisers are like elites with actual power. So the elites uh, were outraged by the accusations against Donald Trump, but they don't have any real power. The voters have the real power. Elites can offer their opinions, but people didn't listen. But in this case, advertisers have real, they have something more than opinions. They have dollars and the, and the program needs to survive with that. But maybe that's wrong. Adam, give me your sense. O'Reilly was at his high, average of 4 million viewers a night. And uh, I think in the last quarter, it was his high, highest ratings ever for Fox. So he was the crown jewel for the news network. Yeah, I mean, to me, being an economic nerd, this is all about carriage fees, cable carriage fees. And Wait, what are cable carriage fees? So if you're Fox News or you're AMC or CNN or, or any basic cable channel, um, you make money two ways. You do the things that CBS does. You, you create programs and sell ads against them. But then you also get money from all the cable companies that carry you. And I think CBS does that too. But um, so 
and and that is negotiated every four years or so. So Fox News executives will sit down with Optimum Cable or Spectrum Cable or whoever and say, we want $2 per subscriber. And they'll say, no, we only want to give you 50 cents per subscriber. And then eventually you reach where Fox is, somewhere around a dollar per subscriber. And those fees are not directly linked to audience. One of the most watched cable channels, maybe the most, is USA Networks, which is famous for just playing Law & Order reruns all day. It has way more audience than Fox News, but its carriage fees are much less. And that's because a big part of the negotiation over carriage fees is the passion of a small group of viewers. So this is the reason for the golden age of television. Um, You love Mad Men or you love... um, you know, uh, The Walking Dead or whatever. These aren't huge audiences by traditional broadcast standards, but they're passionate, excited audiences. This is why the Mad Men finale took place over two years so that they could spread it over two negotiating periods. So the carriage fees are, in a sense, the monetization of passion. So four million viewers is a lot for cable news, but it's very little for the world of of broadcast. Um, But who better in the world at stoking outrage than Bill O'Reilly? You know, you could imagine if any local cable company even considered not carrying Fox News, Bill O'Reilly could instantly have massive protests in everywhere that cable company is saying you're part of the left wing agenda, blah, 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 blah. I looked at the economics of Bill O'Reilly's show itself. It makes about a hundred and so million dollars a year. His salary is 20 million dollars. Tucker Carlson has been performing less well, but not that much less well and presumably makes less than Bill O'Reilly does. So the direct advertising loss due to Bill O'Reilly might be 10, 20, 30 million dollars. That's not a lot. The corporate parent, 21st Century Fox, makes, you know, $30 billion a year. It's it's not a significant amount that should occupy our attention in this way or occupy the attention of the Murdoch family. It should have been a fairly trivial decision. That being said, losing this force for cable fees, that will cost billions of dollars potentially to the corporate parent. So you're basically saying the economics of the advertisers pulling out shouldn't have mattered and all the energy should have been in the other side. So then why bother with this? What's the... So there's no economic argument for getting rid of O'Reilly? Oh, no, sorry. It, I, I do think there is an economic. So so in those negotiations, you know, it, it wouldn't just be O'Reilly protesters fighting against Fox News channel carriage fees being lowered. It would be anti-O'Reilly forces arguing for them to be lowered. It would have made that that whole process more fraught for Fox in ways that that I think counteracted the, the keep O'Reilly. So I, I do... So- I do think this was a long-term economic, sensible economic decision. I just think it was rooted more in the nature of carriage fee negotiations than in advertising. Got it. Emily, give me your um, legal read on the agreement that existed before, that the New York Times wrote about, that existed before the accusers came. Fox and O'Reilly paid out $13 million um, basically to settle. They were supposed to keep silent. Was that a fine you know, legal deal? Uh, or was there something fishy with that? Well, I mean, look, people reach deals like this for their own interests. So the women who had been harassed got compensated. They got a lot of money for what they had gone through, and they decided that that was a deal they want to take. 
when you sign a non-disclosure agreement like this and you can't talk about what happened to you, and then as a result of your not telling your story, the person who is allegedly doing it gets to continue doing it, that's not a social benefit. So I do think there's a way in which the non-disclosure part of these agreements are a sellout from the point of view of, you know, women who have, like I said, I mean, you have your individual interests of getting compensated, and then you have this question about whether speaking out is going to potentially protect other people. And that's what you choose not to um, contribute to when you sign one of these agreements. I mean, you know, obviously the history of this is complicated because in the past, and it may, may well be true again, there have been a lot of costs for speaking out and women have worried about putting themselves forward and all of the backlash. I mean, we all still have Anita Hill in our minds, or at least it's hard to completely shed that image of someone whose own reputation really gets shredded in the course of these kinds of allegations. So obviously there are reasons for not coming forward, but when those reasons are purely financial, you know, that's a problem, socially speaking. Do you think these kinds of agreements can ever really hold that doesn't it just always basically get out? And does that change the way these kind of arrangements would be made in the in the future for other companies or for people who are worried about speaking out and the, and the cost of that? Well, I don't think things always get out. I mean, I think when you have a very high profile, potentially explosive situation like this, where there would be a ton of media interest if a story could get told and confirmed, then yes, we are seeing some stories get out. But companies wouldn't ask employees and sexual harassment complainants to sign non-disclosure agreements if they thought there was nothing to be gained here. So I think that they will continue to be a real part of this landscape. Just talking to lawyers who negotiate these kinds of agreements, I don't think they're convinced that the fact that O'Reilly and Ailes have been taken down despite these non-disclosure agreements means that, you know, the confidentiality clauses are going anywhere. So we're now going to move on to cocktail chatter. Adam, what is your cocktail chatter this week? So I had another cocktail chatter, but this conversation has made me want to ask you guys a question. I feel like we journalists are facing a problem, which is how do we deal with talking about President Trump and policies? And I think that was emblematic in our conversation about North Korea and and the economics where, you know, I do truly believe his economic policies are horrible. But I also feel like I become a scold and increasingly talk to a smaller number of people. And so I will be having cocktails this weekend, and I will probably be having cocktails with a bunch of journalists, and I will probably talk about that. So that's why I justify this as a cocktail party conversation. How are you wrestling with that? Is there anyone who you think is doing a really good job of threading this needle? Um, no, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. Can you? Well, I, I think really. I think people are either too much like me or too much... Um, giving credence and and sort of trying to treat him. I mean, I guess I'll I'll jump on the Maggie Haberman bandwagon and and Glenn Thrush at the Times as as people who are taking him both literally and seriously. I think it can be done. I mean, you have to take account for what a president does. So a president does something, and then you have to take account for a way in which it's operating. There's a policy context and there's a political context. In this case, the political context is clear. He has a base to whom he is sending signals, and this is a very strong signal to people who put on steel-toed shoes in the, in the morning, that whether the policy benefits of what he's doing are going to directly affect and benefit them, they see a guy out there swinging in their interest. And that matters. 
They were the ones who uh, helped him win the election. That's a group that Democrats feel they have lost touch with. And that's a group that feels they've lost touch with the Democratic Party. I mean, Adam, are you also talking about tone? Yeah, I mean, there's a tone. I mean, I do truly in my heart believe that we have an incompetent racist with a staff of similar people making horrible choices. I feel like the tone I want in everything I say and write is, oh, my God, this is crazy. And that's why I guess wasn't that the tone of the entire last election and it did nothing to persuade anybody? Yeah. I mean, then you get into strategy and then what is my strategy? Yeah, that's the problem. Part of what you're talking about is, I think, just pure exasperation. Like exasperation is not a particularly persuasive mode to be in. Right? Unfortunately, we can't uh, solve this now because we're running out of time. Emily, what's your chatter? So I am chattering about interrupting, which is sort of hilarious because in my own view, I am the queen of interrupting on this show. And today has been one more example about that. But I am really taken with a study in the Virginia Law Review that Adam Liptak wrote up in the Times about interrupting on the Supreme Court and what the researchers, Tonya Jacoby at Northwestern and a student of hers named Dylan Schwears, what they found was that male justices interrupt female justices far more often than the other way around. And conservative justices interrupt liberal justices more than the other way around. I fear that I like the study merely because it confirms all my own biases, but I was particularly struck by one detail, which is that the like chief interrupter, interruptee pair on the Supreme Court were Scalia and Breyer, in which Scalia was just, just could not stop interrupting Breyer during Scalia's years on the court. And it just, that pair towers above all the other interruptions going on on the court. Um, and it just, I can't imagine it did not drive Justice Breyer slightly mad. Um, but it is just a little delicious to remember Scalia in that mode. And then the last thing about this study that's really enjoyable is when you're a lawyer appearing before the Supreme Court, there are rules. You are not supposed to interrupt the justices. So it turns out that women who litigate before the Supreme Court obey this rule. Men break it, but men are much more likely to break it by interrupting a female justice than a male justice. So I know in many ways we have moved on from the most kind of typical and predictable sexist forms of assumptions and interactions, but it seems like in this sphere they are being quite well preserved. I didn't... um... Do what uh, I did not interrupt with you while you were doing that because uh, that would have been a bad dumb joke. That was so nice. Um, I just want I want <laughs> I some was credit of the same dumb joke. I was uh, I want credit for not making the dumb joke. Mine is about um, two little passages of reading that uh, I came across while I was doing my whistle stop on um, on Kennedy's speech to uh, Yale, and which which was all about business, but also about lots of other things too. But um, two things that struck me: one, uh, this is a line of how he. Um, what he felt when he first came to Washington. And this is from Arthur Schlesinger. The presidential government coming to Washington aglow with new ideas and a euphoric sense that it could not go wrong, promptly collided with the feudal barons of the permanent government, entrenched in their domains and fortified by their sense of proprietorship. And the permanent government, confronted by this invasion, began almost to function as a resistance movement, scattering to the marquee in order to pick off the intruders. This was especially true in foreign affairs. That, that basically is the way Steve Bannon feels. So John Kennedy uh, had a, um, 
have felt the same way about the administrative state that they feel in the Trump administration. And the second one was a little life hack that Kennedy had about the Oval Office behavior, which I think, um, which I just loved, which is that he made it a practice to stand in the middle of the Oval Office and greet people he thought might talk too long. And then he would, as they were talking, drift towards the door and then open it whenever he'd heard enough. And that that got people out of the Oval Office. So those of you who are chief executives with fancy offices, you might uh, start employing that life hack to um, shorten the conversations. Our intern is Kevin Townsend. Our producer is Jocelyn Frank. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer for Panoply. The Slate Political Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts on panoply.fm. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest with lots of links. Our Facebook page, facebook.com slash gabfest. Check out uh, Slate Gabfest, our Twitter feed. And then we also have an email address. It's gabfest at slate.com. Please subscribe to the Gabfest in iTunes and leave a comment or rating while you're there. That's how we reach new people and find our place in the world. If you like the show, subscribing and commenting and rating really, really helps us. So... Search for the Slate Political Gab Fest on the iTunes Store. And for Emily Bazelon and Adam Davidson, I'm John Dickerson. We'll talk to you next week. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.